You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. Today, I actually have two special guests. This is the team of founders from Insight Surgical. And at Insight, they are designing a better way to do surgery by using computer vision and artificial intelligence to really decode what is happening in the operating room. We are so excited that they are doing this. And we always disclose our relationships. We are proud at Mammoth to be one of the investors at Insight Surgical. We're very proud of the work that they're doing, the progress they're making as a company. So we do want you to know that, listeners. We do have a financial relationship here, and we are darn proud of it. Most importantly, I want to introduce you to our great guests who are here today. These are both just two world-class operators in their areas of expertise. And it's fun for me to see how they've come together from such different backgrounds, different ways of approaching problems to create just a powerhouse team at Insight Surgical. So first we have Derek Amanatula, who is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in hip and knee surgery. And he does that at Stanford University. So this is a world-class guy in the orthopedic surgery world in his own right. But what I really appreciate about Derek is he has been on a quest asking what's broken in surgery and then how can we make surgery better? That's been a quest for him since being in practice. And you're going to hear about how that helped lead to Insight Surgical and what they're doing. We also have here today, Nathaniel Smith. And he is a world-class designer who really focuses on the overall environment. So objects, space, time, how all these things come together, even the way that we behave and play, how all these components come together for how we're interacting with our environment, whether that be technological or not. Prior to founding Insight Surgical, Nathaniel spent 10 years in the medical device space, and he was actually helped building products that help put Navy SEALs back into action. So we are extremely grateful for his work supporting our service men and women. And then after that, built a lab that was really using photonics. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later today, but using photonics and then move more into really robust computer applications. And what you're going to hear eventually today is this story of how these two very different individuals, one who's a world-class surgeon and one who's a world-class designer actually come together to say, how can we fix what's broken in surgery and make it better? And Insight Surgical has been on a mission ever since. And again, we're very proud to support them in that mission. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here today. We're so glad to have you. Tommy, thank you so much for having us today. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tommy, for the warm introduction. Absolutely. Well, you know, our listeners love to hear people's stories. So Derek, I'd like to start with you today. And, you know, you didn't start out thinking you were going to become an orthopedic surgeon. Actually, you spent a long time becoming an oncologist to focus on cancer and then had some pretty significant changes that led you down the orthopedic path. So I'd love to unpack that. Absolutely. So I was actually inspired by uh, several people in my life and wanted to become a surgeon scientist. I spent 
probably a good decade of my life studying some chromatin remodeling proteins that turn out to be critical for cancer regulation. But at the same time I was doing my PhD in cancer, I was also involved in martial arts. And, you know, I ended up actually running, getting a second degree black belt and running a martial arts school in New York for also about a decade. Derek, what kind of martial arts was this? Yeah, so I I studied Taekwondo and Hapkido. I had about 40 students and it was actually, I actually spent some time thinking that I might go to Korea and train and actually become a professional martial artist. That's a very interesting time in my life. That's incredible. And and Derek, I do want to share, my wife is actually a black belt in Taekwondo, little known fact. And the best date we ever had in our life, I kid you not, we both suited up in full pads. We cleared out our furniture from our living room And we just had a sparring session and it was awesome. And yes, she absolutely kicked me right in the head. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a square blow. It was absolutely fantastic. So, so you're in New York, you've got a a world-class studio for martial arts, 40 students, and you're thinking you're going down the, the oncology path. And what was it that actually changed and took you off of that into orthopedics? And so I ended up injuring my shoulder, dislocating my shoulder in a sparring match. Was it with your wife? Unfortunately, it wasn't with my wife, but it was with another slightly grislier gentleman than myself. I love it. I did actually end up bringing one of my girlfriends into into the school. And since I was the teacher, it didn't work out nearly as well uh, as yours did, because I think it was far, far better to be the student than the teacher in that particular moment. So I think you're relatively lucky in that interval. It's not good to be giving directions to your wife. Absolutely. <laughs> so I ended up dislocating my shoulder. I actually interviewed four surgeons to try and fix my shoulder. It had to be repaired open and no one wanted to repair it with a scope at the time. And I didn't believe the first surgeon. I actually ended up going back to that first surgeon who repaired my shoulder and I was perfect. I went on to get more injuries from martial arts and continue to do that. And, and actually was a, one of the great parts of my life. It's actually reason that I'm, I think I'm a surgeon. I like the routine and ritual of surgery. And we can talk about how that's important to applying computer vision and how we need to change surgery. So I think it had a profound impact on me. Not only did it change my career where I wanted to devote kind of my thinking as an academician from cancer now to eventually orthopedic surgery. Uh, I actually spent a long time studying infections in orthopedic surgery. Turns out to be very related to cancer. But, you know, during that process of being a surgeon, I also took a course. I'm a kind of a inventive guy. Come up with lots of ideas. I've patented lots of stuff, but it kind of never turned anything into a product. I took a course called biodesign. So that course is meant to actually figure out how to commercialize ideas and products. In that thing, I, I spent a month watching other people do surgery. And what I really found out is that there are some fundamental problems in the communication pipeline of surgery that really make it unsafe. So one of the things you might not know is that objects circulate around surgery like gauze and needles and instruments, but nobody really keeps track of those objects. In fact, we keep track of the ones we're scared of like gauze and needles, and we keep track of it on a whiteboard. And I watched a surgery where one of these objects got lost and people we're looking in the garbage and looking on the ground and sorting around and everyone was nervous and scared. And the surgeon, it's, it's something that I had and actually experienced as a surgeon. And when, when I watched that, I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a better communication pipeline where we can figure out where these things are missing. And this was in that biodesign course. So I worked with two other surgeons to come up with 
how could we see this stuff a different way? There were other methods like barcodes and you know, RFIDs, and they wouldn't really work, especially on needles or on gauze very effectively. And so I was really lucky to pair with this lady, Fei-Fei Li. She turns out to be a fantastic computer vision scientist and two students in her lab. We developed a prototype to track all these things with computer vision. But you know what? There was a huge challenge. One of the challenges was, again, I'd never made anything. I thought of a lot of stuff. I've written a lot of papers, 200 papers, 15 patents on stuff that nobody made. How was I actually going to like make this thing? And I went to Stanford and asked for actually a million dollars to put 50 cameras into the ceiling. And it turns out that that skyrocketed, that price skyrocketed to like $3 million just to do one operating room. I was stumped. I couldn't put these cameras in the ceiling. I could see these kind of cool objects, which were unsolvable according to computer vision. I had this idea of what they would mean to the future of surgery, which we can discuss and kind of how how they have implications of how we change what we communicate about and what we do, but I couldn't do it. I actually tried to figure out how to make a company, but I really didn't have the tools to do that. And then I met Nathaniel and Nathaniel's a guy who makes stuff real. I actually brought him into my operating room and he saw things that I, after 10 years of training to be oncologist, to look at like chemicals and how things would interact and how you could treat cancer after, you know, all this time thinking and training and surgery about how to use tools to do hip and knee replacement, about even studying like how you would see these objects with computer vision, I had no idea how to implement it. And he, in 10 seconds, looked at the space because that's kind of what he does. He looks at space and how people are going to interact in that space and goes, this is how you do it. And really broke down all the translational challenges that I had in my head in half a second. And that's kind of how it is every day with him. He's like, this is how it works. And you're like, wow, I had no idea that's how the world worked, even though I thought about it a thousand times. That's incredible. And what a great segue. Nathaniel, I'd love to talk about your story. And hopefully you can bring us back to this intersection point where you're in the operating room with Derek. But prior to that, how did you get your start in going down this design path? And definitely, please tell us about the time spent helping get Navy SEALs back into action, because I think that's fascinating as well. Sure. So the first 10 years of my career were in product design, so making physical goods. And I lived in Southeast Asia, China, and sold products all over the world. I would tell you that that foundation is very important for what I do today. And it is very important to the rest of my career because I became, you know, I started my first business at 21. I'm a serial entrepreneur, designer, and technologist. And I started my career, you know, figuring out how to build a company from the ground up and how to manufacture goods in Southeast Asia. And that taught me how to develop new processes, how to develop manufacturing pipelines that worked well, like using Kanban from day one. And that informs a lot of of what we're actually doing at Insight Surgical to, to develop logistics. So first 10 years of my career were in product design, making physical goods, building brands, building distribution pipelines. And then around 2010, 2011, I had, or actually it was a little bit 2012, I met a surgeon who was actually at a conference. So I'd started to, to look at how can I leverage my, my understanding and knowledge of designing for physical form and leverage that in the wearable technology space. So I met a, I met a physician, surgeon, while I was at the core wearable tech conference. 
And he saw actually this bag that I'd made, which is, it's maybe my favorite one. And it's quite complicated. There's like an eight foot snake whip that's tied around it. And he said, hey, you know, we're working in prosthetics. This is a really incredible craft. I've kind of learned that it's a Geppetto's workshop when we're going to make prosthetics and we need people from soft goods. So I came in and I had an opportunity to work with them on their tension system and then start to embed those prosthetics with sensors and develop software that enabled amputees to have real-time feedback to their amputated limb to prevent them from actually having injury. Because once you have injury as an amputee, it totally removes your ability to be mobile. And then you're kind of incapacitated in some regard or you're hobbling and damaging your sound side of your body. And so what I learned over time through all of my research participants was if we used actually Bayesian probability algorithms to take qualitative input, measure that qualitative input, and then look at sensor inputs, there's an opportunity for us to actually diagnose or see injury before it was gonna happen and redirect user behavior. So that was the product that I was working on before. I think shortly after that, after those grants went through and, and I imagined that product, I started a, a laboratory. That lab was kind of two parts. It was in-house products that we were developing and it was client services. So on the in-house products, we, we first started with a low cost sensor product. It was using time of flight and photonics. And, and what we were doing was looking at rapid distance measurements and about 180 times a second with the laser, and then being able to actuate lights and a number of other motive objects was the original part of the study. But that over time turned into us looking for an application to measure people in large environments. So first it started us exploring what it was to do events. Then we stumbled upon in that journey, direct out-of-home advertising, so digital media displays out in the wild, they don't actually know how many people are coming in front of them. And so we saw an opportunity to build a Turing test for a storyteller. What would it be for us to study a user's face, their sentiment, and help brands actually understand how many people were seeing digital media display and advertisements? And could we change those advertisements to be in line with how users were hearing those stories and make them more specific for each person who was seeing that story? Along that pathway, while we were just about to launch that product, we found some competition. And as we found that competition, I had been in conversations with Dr. Manatula about being the agency for what he was building because they discovered us because we knew how to build products that were in that area. And I think, you know, for me, I saw an opportunity, actually had this one moment where I was, I had a conversation with my wife and I was just like, you know, I think that long-term, I'm gonna feel better about making surgery safer in the operating room than I am making advertisers more money, <laughs> you know? Absolutely, That you know, that's one of the things we talk about a lot at Mammoth, Nathaniel, is that, you know, there's all this emphasis that's happening in ESG investing and, you know, socially responsible investing. And we just kind of say, you know, that's base camp when you're in healthcare. I mean, we're out saving lives. Like, I don't want to hear about ESG when, you know, it's just such a base camp when you're saving lives day in and day out. And so the work that you all are doing at Insight Surgical, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's just something to be so proud of and things that, I, you know, I say every day, I'll get up and do this till the day I can't. 
because I absolutely love it. It's not quite as rewarding maybe as actually being the surgeon in the room. I'll never fully know, but to be at least one step removed and bringing out that future of medicine to the world, at least I can take a lot of pride in that. And this is about the time that you end up in the operating room with Derek. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. I think, you know, for me, my background is ethnographic research is a core component of what we make, right? So understanding the user, understanding the conditions of an environment is core to actually answering the questions of what should be made. And so Derek, it's so funny, like I, I've started a number of companies, I've started companies since I was 21, but I never had an, a business partner that I didn't meet until after we'd signed, you know, we'd signed documents, but you know, we found in this company during COVID. So that was the way that it worked. And I think shortly after we met for the first time, Derek, that's when we went to your operating room, which was very complicated because it was during COVID and all the COVID protocols were super high and it was a little bit cloak and dagger. But I think the thing that was super clear to me, and I think, you know, unfortunately for most of us, we don't get the opportunity to peek inside of an operating room, right? They're pretty well protected environments for very obvious reasons. But it became very clear to me how actually serious this problem was. You know, our surgeries should not be managed with a dry erase board and a pen. They shouldn't be managed with only manual processes with people talking across a room. It's super clear that they're very easy to apply solutions in these environments and there's a right way to do it. And I, I feel pretty proud that we've stumbled upon that right way to do it through hard work and listening to spaces and people. Well, this is a great segue so that we can talk more about Insight Surgical and what you're doing. And it goes back to the passion and the really the quest that you've had, Derek, of looking at what's broken in surgery. And so some of the things I've heard you are seeing we are still doing manual processes. We're actually going into the operating room and before the surgery happens, we're cataloging each item in the room. How many sponges are there? How many needles? And we're writing those items on a whiteboard. And we end up at the end of that, we've got 55 items we have to make sure we're responsible for. And then at the end of surgery, we're going back and we're recounting those items. And I just think about how many times am I counting something and there's only nine of them. And I get to seven and I'm like, wait, was that six or seven? And then I got to go start all over. And this is just kind of a normal part of the status quo in surgery today, which, you know, us as patients, we never see this side of it because we're usually not part of this part of it. You know, we're either asleep or we're not in the room. And for you to see those things and say, oh my goodness, there's got to be a way to automate these. It just makes so much sense to me and obviously is what you all are up to at Insight. So let's move into that. As you started to see these and Nathaniel realizes you don't need 50 cameras, you can solve this problem a lot more efficiently than that. How did you end up actually tackling it? Yeah, so I think, I think for me, I mean, Nathaniel got in the room and literally just looks at the wall and says, is anyone using this? Because there's nothing there. And he quickly realized you didn't need 30 or 40 cameras in the ceiling. And that, then you see the ceiling has ducting and all these things for air circulation and lights and everything. And there's obstructions in the way. And he quickly turned to something that we all never thought of. There's actually nothing on the wall, literally. And he's like, you could do this with like four or eight cameras. Like, this is, this is crazy. You should, you should use this space. 
You know, the other thing that he turned to right away, which was something that I hadn't turned to. So it actually turns out that computer vision, documenting and tracking all the things that you talked about highlights two really interesting things. We could have vision there, but if the people aren't willing to use the vision and how's the vision, how are they going to use it? How's it going to like get there? He instantly turned to the whiteboard, which I hadn't really thought of before. And how, how are we going to redesign this thing as an interface where this information comes back? And where's the information going once we get it off the wall? So he was like 10 steps ahead about what we would do. I was worried about where, how we're going to get it. He was like, how we're going to use it. And so a lot of his insights also came from not just where it's going to go, but what will we do? How will we distribute that information? Where does it need to be? How do the people need to touch it? Where are they going to touch it? Where is it going to be? And so where are the people? Where are the tables? Where are the other objects that are interesting here? Not just the objects I was interested in. So it's interesting to see again where his mind went. The other thing you highlight, and I'll, I'll point this out, is that you're right. We count, say, five pieces of gauze in and five pieces of gauze out. It wasn't apparent to me how broken the system was until we started making this. What the patient and the doctor really want to know is the two pieces of gauze that go into the patient and the two that leave. The other three on the back table doing nothing really mean nothing. And so it highlighted a really interesting point that not only were we measuring a bunch of stuff and measuring it just by counting it, right, again, in an inefficient way, but we were measuring the wrong measurement of the things. And so everything in this space was really broken. It was really designed around administrative tasks that needed to happen to prove that the space was safe. But none of that was working for me as a physician or for the patient laying there. And that, that needed a complete redesign. It needed a designer to step into the space and say, well, this is how it really works. That's insane. And the second he stepped in that space, it really made me realize that that's why it's broken. It's been a privileged space where cameras have never been and nobody's ever analyzed it to make it better. And we were kind of the first people standing in that space to say, let's redesign the whole thing. And it makes so much sense to me because what a lot of our listeners may not know is if there's a mistake made in this space, if we accidentally leave something inside of a patient, it has a substantial cost. I mean, over half a million dollars per incident. It is a big deal because it can lead to things like infections or now you have to come back and have a new surgery just to remove what got left in in your last surgery. So when we care about the ultimate patient outcome and making sure that those patients are as safe as possible, a way better approach. We, we always talk about this in operations, but prevention is always, always, always better than detection. Prevention is always better than detection because we can eliminate all the waste that happens when we don't prevent. And so if we can have technology in the operating room that prevents these errors from even occurring, we don't have to worry about detection later when the patient has a nasty infection or a lot of pain or whatever it may be, or maybe after we've closed the patient up and now we're just counting down the whiteboard and we realize, oops, there's something missing. And even though we caught it early, even early detection is never as good as prevention. It's just such a fundamental point in operations protocol. And Nathaniel, it goes beyond just quality standards. I mean, efficiency is just as important. We're trying to make sure that we increase the amount of time that doctors can actually spend operating and that hospitals can actually use their operating rooms. I mean, imagine that. Really important things. And it, so it goes beyond quality into efficiency. And that's part of what you've helped design into the system. So tell us more about that. 100%, Tommy. I think while quality is very important to me as a former patient, I think 
uh, we can all agree that what hospitals want to spend money on is efficiency. And so I will tell you this. I think I saw an opportunity at, while I was in the operating room and as I talked to a number of hospital administrators and operative staff while we were working on the design of this product, that there was an opportunity for at once manufacturing things that we use in technology, like product building all the time. So, you know, what is what is the lean way that we can address the calendar of the operating room? Who are all the players in the room? What are the tasks that need to be done? We'd started to design the case roadmap already. And then we learned along that pathway about a tool go on days uh, checklist manifesto. And I think, you know, as I read that book. I shared it with a number of people in the company. It's a fantastic book and I highly recommend it to everyone. That was making the clinical case for exactly what we were already designing. So, you know, as a signal from the world, you, you have those as you go down a journey. It's like a signal from the world, like, oh yes, this is the right thing. Uh, people know what you're, you know, what you're doing already. And I think that there's a ginormous opportunity for hospital administrations to understand what is the operational footprint that's happening in that room. I think for operative staff to have information distributed to them about the process of every other staff member in the operating room with them, especially because hospitals have 18% attrition. So there's nurse turnover. So in that first 90 days of, of a, a new circulator or a new scrub, understanding what's already happening in that room and being able to see it in you know, a glance instead of having to ask somebody else and slow them down, that just reaps speed in an environment. That reaps a, a more, you know, time reduction in an overall case flow of a day. So there's actually a training and educational component that is occurring by nature of the enhancements utilizing the technology. That's really where surgery is also being decoded is in a way that you can train it a lot more efficiently as well for the people who are going to be in that operating room. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, it comes down to the information pipeline, Tommy. So right now, the information pipeline in surgery is everything coming out of my mouth or I can write with my hands. It turns out when we communicate with words, so that's basically words, it only moves at 39 bits per second. But video takes in data so much faster, right? So at the end of the day, that communication pipeline is what's broken. What we need is team members to have information before I say it because they know the objects that I use or the people that are there. And that works seamlessly, both with education, as well as with performance, as well as with safety, as well as with quality, as well as with value. And so, like, if you ask me as a surgeon now, like, what we need is a, you know, an artificial intelligence system collecting this data that we can interface with that's helping us be more performant. Like, so what's surgery? Like, let's make surgery really simple. Surgery is some guy with a knife that puts someone to sleep and kills a bunch of bacteria to do that surgery safely. That's basically the three revolutions of surgery. This is the fourth revolution of surgery. You would never walk into a surgical room again without an information pipeline feeding that team the metrics of safety, the metrics of efficiency, guiding that surgery. Patients should have scores of their surgery and administrators should know which surgeons are performing. I think this is really what we're ultimately talking about is that the communication pipeline of surgery is fundamentally in the 1800s, in the 1700s, and it's never changed because no one's ever seen it. And so Nathaniel has actually figured out a way to install this computer vision system that for me was a bead counter, how to count safety objects. And we've turned it into the language of surgery itself. And I think that's one of the great things that Insight for me as a provider is doing. It's going to revolutionize 
what surgery itself means. What do we actually expect as patients out of our healthcare system and out of our healthcare providers? I mean, that is where this company is going to go. And the outcomes are pretty clear to me. You've got better patient results, so less patient risk. They're not going to have instrumentation or sponges or needles or anything left inside of them anymore. You're going to have way more efficient surgeries. We're not having to spend 15 minutes just counting utilities and listing them out by hand on a whiteboard in 2022. Saying that is almost makes me hurt. And ultimately then you've got less cost. So the hospital has less cost. The doctor has less cost. And ultimately, that's one of the ways that the patient can have less cost. So, uh, and we all know that, you know, the cost, the value chain in the medical world is just needs significant help. This is one of those key things that we can be doing right now to help make that happen. So Derek and Nathaniel, what's been so great for me to get to be kind of a fly on the wall to observe is you've continued to build out insight and we've gotten to be a small part of that journey along the way. It's just most solutions either provide more safety for the patient or less cost, but there's very, very few solutions that come across our desk that actually provide both more safety and less cost. And that's part of what I think makes Insight Surgical's story so powerful is that you are one of those few opportunities out there that is actually increasing patient safety while simultaneously increasing efficiency and reducing cost. And for now, all we've been talking about, Nathaniel, is what you've already been working on at Insight. We haven't been talking about where the future is headed for Insight. So tell us about where you're headed. Yeah, absolutely. So we cloned Derek's operating room in a warehouse in San Francisco. So we've been demonstrating for large systems and investors, our technology working. That is leading up to our near-term deployment in Oklahoma, where we are deploying for the very first time in an operating room and studying the KPI metrics that apply, which Derek will publish on later. I would tell you that that is, that is one lane. I am very excited to be working on a whiteboard deploy product for ambulatory surgery centers. I think it's going to be very exciting for them to be able to learn how to control the cost of the real core cost for every specific case, which is super critical to their profit margins and return on investment as an institution. And we are now sharing what we're doing, what we've been working very hard on the laboratory for the last two years with the world. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And that's a great segue into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everyone wants to know. And usually what I say is, that's the question that I actually want to know. But in your case, I really do think everyone wants to know. You know, we say a picture is worth a thousand words. If our listeners have heard about this today, that you're using computer vision and artificial intelligence to really decode and make surgery so much more efficient, do you have some kind of demo video that we can post in our show notes that they can go watch and actually see this in action? Yes. Actually, a very close friend of mine, Jacopo Campaiola, just won an Emmy for the trade on Showtime came and shot with us in our demo facility. And we're editing it right now. So it, it should be out in the next few weeks. And we're happy to share that with you. I think the, the story that we've shot, so we did a mock surgery and then we showed how data moves 
through our cameras, through our entire system, and delivers information operative staff when and where they need it. So yeah, I'm happy to share that with you. Nathaniel, I think that would be incredible. Um, and so listeners, we will put that in our show notes. We'll put a link to this video. It goes beyond a demo. This sounds fantastic. So we will put a link to this in our show notes, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you can just go click and actually see this technology in action. And it's exciting for me, you know, our first episode ever about artificial intelligence was just a few months back with Rana al Kayubi who talked about developing emotional artificial intelligence. And so if you've listened to that episode, you've got a good foundation on what artificial intelligence is. And now you're seeing some real world deployment of that artificial intelligence in a way to make surgery better. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. Love being a part of this, love this team. That actually takes us to our real question, which is, Surely some of our listeners out there, you know, we have lots of medical listeners. Surely some of our listeners out there are thinking, how can I get this in my operating room? Or how can I be a part of this? How can I invest in this company? Any of those types of things. So if they want to reach out to your team at Insight Surgical, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. Our website is n. Site, S-I-G-H-T, surgical, S-U-R-G-I-C-A-L dot A-I. Insight surgical dot A-I. And again, we'll put that in the show notes, listeners. So feel free to check it out. You can go to their website. There will be a contact us link, a way to get in touch. Again, whether you're thinking about how can I get this in my operating room or how can I get more involved with this company? So this has been absolutely wonderful. Really appreciate you both coming on helping everybody learn about the future of surgery. And I love how you said it, Derek. I mean, this is really, you're redesigning the entire way that communication happens in the operating room. And why are we doing that? Because it hasn't been redesigned since the 1700s. I mean, this is incredible. So truly honored to be a part of it. Really enjoy your team. Appreciate all the hard work that uh, you all do day in and day out. And thanks so much for being with us here on Beyond the Ordinary. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we can't do this show without you. So really appreciate all of your involvement as well. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having us, Tommy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.